From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. And if you're in uh, the conspiracy game, this is sort of like uh, our Christmas, really. And not to be too sort of morbid about it, but as we very quickly uh, wind down uh, and arrive at the fateful day, November 22nd, 1963, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and this program will be going, will drill down uh, extensively in the in the coming weeks. And I just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, of course, next week we'll continue on with our JFK uh, series with James D. Eugenio, assassination researcher. That'll be our final installment with James, uh, episode six of JFK Connecting the Dots. And we'll take a look at the life and times of Jim Garrison, of course, who is central to the whole JFK story. That's next week. Then the following week, we're going to dedicate the entire show to JFK. Jim Mars, the book that sort of served as the basis of Oliver Stone's JFK, and Jim Mars served as a consultant on the film. Jim is sort of one of the granddaddies of conspiracy uh, theory and also certainly one of the uh, preeminent JFK researchers. So Jim Mars will be with us. Our media scientist, assassination researcher Nelson Thaw, will also be with us. And uh, we're also working on lining up a few other uh, JFK researchers, including uh, Jim Fetzer. So that's in two weeks. Speaking of Nelson Thal, he'll be with us at the bottom of the hour. We're uh, sort of instituting a brand new segment on the show called State Secrets. And every two weeks, Nelson Thal will be with us at the bottom of the hour, delivering sort of the news behind the headlines, if you will, and exposing State Secrets. So State Secrets Volume 1 coming up a little bit later. Now, if you're like me, you're looking at the headlines and following not only what's happening in the news, but also in the business pages, it's kind of hard not to lose faith. We have central bankers seemingly running amok, printing uh, $85 billion a month stateside to, uh, to keep that economy sort of, I guess, just on the precipice. From collapsing, it seems to me what we have in the United States is an economy that's entirely addicted to that uh, quantitative easing, $85 billion a month, and of course the latest Fed FOMC meeting indicating that they're not going to be tapering anytime soon. Uh, every time they hint at a taper, of course, the, uh, the stock market craters. Uh, the question is, what happens when interest rates and inflation start to rise, and how will they possibly... Uh, you know, be able to keep a handle on a, a debt that's already spiraling out of control. Uh, so it, it really gets to the very root of the question of, you know, what is money? Where does it come from? And this is something that we've discussed uh, many times on the program. And, of course, you've often heard a term on this show called fiat currency uh, and the idea that uh, essentially money being created out of thin air, but uh, it is created as debt and therefore can never be paid off. However, uh, my next guest, who's a researcher and blogger, uh, is going to talk to us about what he calls the suppressed history of successful government-issued interest-free currencies and local currencies from the 1700s all the way up until today, and uh, has a lot of interesting things to say. In, in fact, a few of them, you know, we may actually part company. Uh, I, I'm, I, I think it's no secret. I'm a bit of a gold bug myself, uh, but Jason Erb. Uh, doesn't necessarily uh, look at gold the same way I do and some others. Uh, but Jason is actually going to be appearing at uh, Conspiracy Culture, our good friends Patrick and, and uh, Kadena, Conspiracy Culture down in uh, the east end of Toronto, or sorry, Queen Street, uh, Queen Street West. 
1696 Queen Street West. He's going to be speaking there as part of a celebration of the ninth annual Usury Free Week. And usury, of course, being the lending or practice of lending money at an exorbitant interest. And uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome to the program Jason Erb. Hello, Jason. How are you? Great, Richard. Thank you very much for having me on the show. First of all, let's get a definition of uh, what, what we mean by, uh, as I say, we've discussed it on the air, but let me get your definition of uh, fiat, a fiat currency or fiat money. It comes from the Latin word that means to be done. So it's actually referring to the sovereign going and issuing it. So it was later redefined to be something that was not backed up by precious metals, and some people would specifically tie it to gold and silver. But the original definition was by the sovereign, which meant the government, and even before that, it would the monarchs. So it would be the currency that would be issued, say, by the Bank of Canada, but it would not actually apply under that original definition to the Federal Reserve notes that are issued in the United States, because those are issued by a privately owned central bank, even though there's the public component in terms of the Board of Governors and the chairman. And they have the 12 different regional banks that were set up, but the member banks are all privately owned. Right. I've often, heard of, I've often heard of the Federal Reserve Bank, that it's neither federal, it's not a reserve, and it's not a bank. But uh, talking about fiat currency, uh, my, I, I mean, is, it, is it fair to say that it's essentially it's a government IOU? That's the way that it is in terms of looking at the Canadian example. And even with the U.S., it's uh, backed up by the government, essentially, even though it's the private banks that issue it. But the way it is right now, it, it absolutely is an IOU. It's a promissory note, meaning that it's a promise to go and pay. And it's actually unlike a regular promissory note that the Federal Reserve notes, for instance, they're not redeemable in anything. Whereas most promissory notes that you write, you can go and uh, cash them in for something that, that's specified on the note. But these Federal Reserve notes, even though they're called notes, you cannot redeem them for anything. It's actually backed up by the production of the citizenry. And that's what I would say that money really should be based upon, upon production and not actually on the value that is equated with something just based on a historical perception like with gold for instance that's why some people say that only gold or silver can be money because of the historical value that has been placed upon it for such a long period of time where there has been at least some value as it's been said that the value of gold and silver has never gone down to zero over 6,000 years whereas you can look at particular government or privately issued currencies through the government where they have gone down to zero or the only value they retain was through was through the collector value. It's the same thing with certain numismatic coins as well. There's a collector value above the actual precious metal value. But the thing I would point there is it's when the issuance of the currency was not properly controlled, when there was too much currency that was issued to exceed the demand of that currency. Which is and essentially the at, which is essentially what we have now, certainly in the United States, with this quantitative easing pumping eighty five billion dollars a month. Now real I realize, you know, they're 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 buying sort of mortgage backed securities, but essentially it's the result is the same. And this is what I believe and, and many of the sort of the uh, forecasters and so forth that I follow believe is that this is the only thing that's keeping uh, the stock market, uh, you know, reaching these record highs. They they are creating new bubbles, which is what got us into the the, the the asset bubbles, which is what got us into the into into trouble back in in 2008. And so instead of correcting the problem, they're just simply exacerbating it, creating more and more asset bubbles. 
Uh, I mean, what, 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 um, what is your sense? I mean, you, you coming at this from a, 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 an interesting perspective, and you believe that because there is this suppressed history of fiat currencies, there, there have been fiat currencies that you say have worked, have been successful, interest-free uh, fiat currencies. Is that the well, idea? Well, you look, you look back to the early part of the 1700s, and you have the one colonial currency, the Pennsylvania pound, which Ellen Brown documents about how successful that was. That was an exception with some of the other colonial currencies, which were specifically cited out for having poor performance. But the thing that affected all those colonial currencies eventually was an act of the British Parliament, which said that no new paper notes could be issued in one of the acts. And then also with the first one that came in, it also said that that those paper notes would no longer be valid for the settlement of private debts. So it's this power that's given through government of legal tender for the public in order to pay taxes. And another component is if there's the ability to use it to settle private debts where the government backs that up and forces that, that you can settle any debt with whatever currency it is, which in the U.S. it's the Federal Reserve notes, that that was taken away. So even though there were some currencies in the colonies where they were overissued through they didn't have the proper controls and then there could be issues of counterfeiting. But uh, the one thing that sunk the value of all of them, even the Pennsylvania pound, which was successful, was that external act through the British Parliament that said that they were no longer valid for the private settlement of the notes. And you look to the time of the Civil War. Now, this is a very misunderstood case whereby I find even the alternative media, it's not often discussed, is you had what are known as the United States notes, which are still in circulation today. And at one point, it accounted for nearly 14% of the total money supply, where it was just over issued over a few years. And you had, this was to pay for the Civil War. They were issued interest-free. And even though there were associated bonds, so debt inter- instruments that were you could redeem them into, but these underlying notes were interest-free. And like I said, they accounted for around 14% of the money supply at its height. And the thing about them is, is that it, it said about how because they were paper money that they failed, but it's been documented by someone who wrote during the late 1800s, Sarah Emery. She had pointed out that they traded at parity with gold. So whatever the value of gold was relative to these greenback dollars, that it was equal. And what happened was it was when they, Several months later, they passed the exception clause, which specifically said that you could not use these greenbacks to pay back interest on the national debt or on the tariffs, which at that time, the tariffs accounted for the overwhelming majority of the revenue that came into the U.S. federal government. Right. This is before income tax. Yes. Yes. So that really sunk the value then. And so in that case, it wasn't about that there was an overissuance of them. So much as it was that, again, like I talked about with the case of that act of the British Parliament saying that you could no longer use them for the private debts, because these greenbacks were also valid for settling private debts as well as the public debts. But then they specifically said you could not use them to pay the interest on the national debt. Now, one of the problems with with fiat money, though, uh, as I see it, uh, Jason, is that, I mean, the minute that it's issued, it comes into being as debt. So how can you ever pay that off? The thing is, if you have a debt-based currency, just saying it's an obligation. So if the government issues it, then it's their obligation to maintain it. And if it gets destroyed, then they can issue new ones. And and then 
go and replace that value that was initially put out there as we have now with the notes if they if they go to circulation they can be reissued but the problem is that with if there's an overissuance of the money that's going to be a problem but the thing isn't so much the actual paper notes themselves it is the issuance of the currency itself whether it exceeds the demand that's out there all right jason we've got to take a time out we'll come back and continue to talk about uh, what jason herb describes as faux capitalism we'll also talk about uh, gold gold confiscation what is legal tender and uh, as much as we can cram into uh, the next 15 minutes or so back with more of the conspiracy show stay with us Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back, Jason Erb. I guess in a sense, uh, Jason, you're uh, here in defense of fiat currency and some of the misconceptions. As I stated to you earlier, I'm a, I'm a bit of a gold bug. I think gold is genuine wealth. It is real money. I think it was a, a quote attributed to Voltaire who said, paper money eventually returns to its intrinsic value, zero, and, I mean, throughout history, I don't think there's a paper currency that's ever survived in its original form. They're, you know, they're normally inflated away until they're basically worthless. And I think we're beginning to see at least the beginning of that with the U.S. dollar. It's sort of just barely hovering above 80 cents. And I've heard some su- suggest in the, uh, 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 you know, in the uh, financial papers that if it gets below 79 cents, it could be, in, it could go into free fall. Um, so with that in mind, I mean, how can we make fiat currency work? Well, I think that's really important to focus on having diversification, just like with investments, that that money is supposed to primarily be a medium of exchange. So whether you're using that as gold as your medium of exchange or whether you're using a government-issued currency, that I think it's important to diversify. So one of the big things is with local currencies, that that's an option outside of the whole government system. And also, like, specifically focusing on the, the government-issued currencies, that it is true that there has never been any government-issued currency that has succeeded indefinitely. And that's the same thing with the governments themselves, because the ultimate thing that happens there is that there's a lack of confidence in terms of the ability of the government to be able to guarantee the value of that currency. But... At times, you have gold can severely plummet in value that you had gold in 1980 go from a high of 850 U.S. dollars to below $250 by the year 2001. And so that was a really bad time of 21 years to be investing in gold in in the long term during that particular case. But then on the other hand, that was a great time to be investing in other things. And although the U.S. dollar itself was going down in value because of it wasn't keeping up with the actual production that was taking place. You had the, the government spending that was beyond what was actually being put out there by the whole economy to to generate the kind of wealth to match up with the dollars that were being put out there. But relatively speaking, the whole fact that the gold went down relative to the dollar shows that in that case that the the dollar was actually more valuable over that time period. So I think the important thing is just to look into that, yes, any government-issued currency is not going to last forever, but at the same time, there's a good time to be in gold as a 
micro investment. And then there's other times to be invested in the dollar or assets that are tied to the dollar more so than gold. What I see the fiat currency now is, is it's a great, it's a sweet deal for the politicians, uh, in, particularly in, in the U.S. with the Federal Reserve and, and in Europe where the central bankers are able to uh, essentially uh, print money uh, with virtually no discretion. And this allows uh, politicians uh, to spend, spend, spend without having to go to the taxpayer and say, well, if you want a new program, you know, we're going to have to tax you for it. Uh, if this money is simply being printed uh, seemingly without end, uh, that's a pretty sweet deal for the politicians. And uh, so they've got a vested interest in that. Would you, what are your thoughts on, uh, on the, the Bank of Canada, for example, up here in Canada, uh, the the initial purpose of the of the of the, the Bank of Canada, my understanding was that it was to, to be able to issue interest free money. Uh, this is how the great the Saint Lawrence Seaway was built. This is how we paid for the the war effort uh, during the Second World War. This is how we paid for uh, many of our social programs uh, before sort of the fundamental purpose of the Bank of Canada was changed some somewhere in the late or I, I guess the mid seventies. Let's talk about about the Bank of Canada and, and your thoughts on that. One of the big things holding back the Bank of Canada from doing what you suggested is its membership in the nearly 60-member privately owned Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland. And so that's the central bank for the central bankers. And they have different plans in place whereby one of them that Canada had acceded to was that you cannot, like you were talking about in the 1970s since then, that you cannot go and borrow from your own bank and especially not interest-free. So at least in terms of having the money directly borrowed and then not having any interest associated with that. Now, as I found out, that about 5% of the, the money then that the, the Canadian government is going in and borrowing, it's effectively interest-free because the government of Canada is the sole shareholder of the Bank of Canada unlike in the United States where it's all privately owned banks and they, they take their 6% cut based on their dividend and then the rest of the money is returned to the taxpayer. But the majority of, just like in Canada and the United States, the majority of the money that is lent is through the private banks and that money is not returned to the taxpayer, but it was about 5% is is directly returned through that the, the bank goes and buys up the, the Canadian bonds. And then so since the Canadian government is the shareholder of the bank, then therefore the government gets back that money, but it's restricted to 5% and it's not direct. So because of the Bank for International Settlement, the rules that we've gotten ourselves into in Canada and the United States is under the same thing as well, is that that according to those rules, we cannot go and borrow directly from the bank at no interest. And that is really the issue. What happens is that the Bank of Canada has to go and sell those bonds on the open market. And it just so happens rather the government has to, and it just so happens that the Bank of Canada is purchasing, like I said, in, in the case of 5% of the total money that the Canadian government is spending. But th this is a big thing, is that you look at the whole debt chart, and it, it just skyrocketed so much since the 1970s, and people would talk about how Trudeau was a big factor of that, but really the big factor is some some researchers have pointed out is it has absolutely to do with that Canada cannot, under these restrictions that has placed itself under go and borrow directly from the Bank of Canada with no interest. Well, this did happen under Trudeau's watch. I believe it was 1974 uh, when 
you know, as you say, the Canadian government was forced to go cap in hand to the international international lenders. And if you look at our debt, which is uh, roughly $600 billion, something like 98% of that is attributed to the compound interest um, on, on uh, you know, these loans from international, uh, from, uh, you know, the international money lenders. How do we break out of this? Well, I think one way is that that Canada sh- could pull out of the Bank for International Settlements. There's absolutely nothing keeping it in there, except for being a small country compared to the United States. It'd be very difficult to resist the pressure. I actually heard uh, one of the leaders of the of uh, one of the Canadian parties actually kind of hint at the fact that if Canada did pull out of the Bank for International Settlements, that there'd possibly be some sort of conflagration then that would be started up with some military exercise. And that that's kind of at the extreme end of possibilities. But that is really, it's up to the people to be first informed of these issues, like we're talking about tonight, and then to raise discussion about these issues. But I think the big thing that'll drive change is these local currencies that are popping up, that there's a one of the... Actually, the organizer of this whole usury free conference, like along with Patrick of Conspiracy Culture, is Tom J. Kennedy, who actually started his own local usury free currency. Yeah, let's talk about how does that work? How does that work exactly? How do you start your own local currency? In some ways, it's very easy is that you just go and create notes. In most cases, the actual paper notes that, that are created so that the customers can go and redeem them at the businesses and it's a matter of the local entrepreneurs going and finding businesses who are willing to exchange in these notes and then like Tom Kennedy was telling me that he doesn't suggest that the businesses go and take a hundred percent of the full value of the product in this local currency but say something like five to ten percent of it and so that way they can feel safe in in being introduced to it of still receiving ninety percent of the total value of the product in the Canadian dollars or in the U.S. be the U.S. dollars, and then up to 10% they could take with this local currency. So it'd just be a matter of the entrepreneur goes and creates these notes, and then it would be done through contracts so that you could have it through contracts so the government could enforce it, that you could agree with the business owners that a certain amount of money will be printed. And then if it was ever found out that you were going and violating that, it wouldn't be considered counterfeiting of the official currency, but it would be the case of you violated your contract and that could be you could be held accountable in the civil courts. But what they found is there's this very specific example of the mountain hours in Colorado where the founder there, Wayne Walton, has had amazing success in the United States. I would say he's the number one person behind the local currency movement in terms of the demonstrated success of the actual local currencies usually free in action where he's up to, in in his particular community of Summit County in Colorado, that he's had, he mentioned about, this was over a year ago when I talked to the details, but it was $45,000 that he had in circulation with with dozens and dozens of businesses just in that particular area. And he didn't even need to have a contract with them. They were all trading this currency usury free. So the only thing would be, it would be an exact exchange of value the specified value, there wouldn't be any interest attached to it. And then people could go and lend out that money as well. But there's like a whole buy-in within the community realizing the problems with usury and therefore he didn't even have it in the contract, but they wouldn't so far, they haven't actually lent out that money with any usury. But that is something that could be placed 
in the contracts of anyone participating in it. But this is the great thing is that there's no counterfeiting whatsoever. And also it's, it's actually really easy as long as you don't go and do what happened with the Liberty dollar in the U S it was, there was gold and silver coins in that case. But the problem was calling it the Liberty dollar associating it with the dollar. And this is how they went and got the founder in other, in other ways too. But this is one of the ways that they got them on counterfeiting. So if you just call this a local currency, this is something that you can completely create legally. And there are people, there are these great resources out there that can start you up with one of these currencies and to be able to get involved in using these currencies to find out if you have them in your local community. What about the argument, uh, uh, Jason, that uh, for, let, let's take a look at the uh, the fractional reserve banking uh, system, which basically means, you know, uh, once the, uh, let's say the Federal Reserve orders the Treasury to print up a uh, billion dollars, it's all done electronically, of course, but that, you know, some of that billion dollars ends up in some charter banks and then they're allowed to, they don't have to have have, uh, you know, the exact amount on reserve, they can lend out that many times over, which is why, you know, they fear a rush on the bank. If everyone goes to the bank looking for their money, it's not there. It's been lent out many, many, many times. That's sort of a very simple explanation of fractional reserve banking. But without fractional reserve banking, without expanding that credit, uh, one might argue that for the United States, for example, wouldn't have been able to do many of the things that, that they accomplished, uh, like, you know, building the Erie Canal or, or paying for, uh, you know, the defense of the nation and so forth. Without being able to expand credit, which fractional reserve banking allows you to do, you know, where would be, uh, where, where would we be? I mean, much of the wealth was created because of that. The Great Depression in the United States illustrated a great example is you actually had 40% backing of the money supply with gold. And so, therefore, it was a fractional reserve banking and specifically tied to gold. And that did not stop the nearly 5,000 bank panics that occurred where there were bankruptcies of the actual banks. And the specific issue there was that when for every $2 that people would redeem they would say, I want this back in gold. They would have to call back the other $3 because of the fraction there. There wasn't the full amount. So that is even the problem if you have gold backing. That's the problem with fractional reserve banking. I would say what the fractional reserve banking caused was specifically led to the Great Depression. There were other factors as well. But that was what it leads to is these super cycles where you have this great expansion of the credit, the roaring 20s, but then you have this great collapse that happened during the Great Depression. And then specifically, it was gone off the gold standard at that time. Where And then there was gold was specifically confiscated from the people. But then on the other hand, I would say there's a problem with if you had full reserve banking, but if you had it backed by gold by government, saying that 100% of, that you could have these paper notes or the numbers in a computer, and that you could exchange dollar for dollar the, the equivalent value in gold, whatever the government says it is. And the problem there is that so long as you have usury, so long as you have any amount of interest, especially compound interest, it's a ticking time bomb where there will eventually be more demands on the money than the actual money that is out there. Well, that's a to- problem. There's no, uh, enough, the only, the amount of gold that's been mined uh, throughout history is enough to fill only two Olympic swimming pools. So uh, gold is certainly finite. Uh, listen, Jason, thanks for your time. Thank you, Richard. All right, when we come back, a brand new segment, State Secrets with Nelson Thal. 
is loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. In, in just a few moments, we're going to open up the uh, the telephone lines, and the last uh, 15 minutes uh, or so of the broadcast will be open lines. So, if you'd like to talk about anything you've heard on the program uh, recently, uh, now is your time. We don't get an opportunity uh, to do an open line segment very often, and this is it. So. Uh, you can start calling in now if you want to talk about, uh, well, as we approach the uh, 50th anniversary of JFK, if you want to talk about that, uh, if you want to talk about some, some recent guests uh, and things that they've had to say, then uh, it is your opportunity to do so. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, for just a few moments, we're uh, introducing a brand new segment on the show called State Secrets. This will be Volume 1, and it's uh, a bi-monthly report. Uh, which will expose high crimes and state secrets and deliver the news that the mainstream media won't touch. Uh, and here to do so is uh, Nelson Thull, who was deputized by Jim Garrison, Pierre Salinger, Penn Jones, and Sherman Skolnick to continue on the trail of the assassins of President John F. Kennedy and other high crimes by those same people who succeeded in this 1963 coup d'etat. Nelson was named the McLuhan Archivist by the Marshall McLuhan Center after McLuhan's death in 1980. And uh, here we go with our first installment of State Secrets. Nelson, how are you? Great. It's great being here. Looking forward to this little quick segment. Well, listen, I want to start off with, you know, people uh, uh, always complain about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. And it's the same thing with chemtrails. People talk about, I get pictures being sent to me all the time uh, of chemtrail, major chemtrail activity. And uh, and yet now, finally, we have someone who's actually doing something about us. Tell, and it's a Canadian, uh, no less. Tell us about this Canadian uh, who's uh, trying to stop chemtrails in their tracks. Well, he feels that by going to the... Um to the uh, to the courts that he's going to be able to try and do something. Uh, but, Richard, the thing is this, that we know more and more that backstage the state secret that's leaking out from the intel apparatus is that uh, they're trying to do something to control the amount of heat that has been retained within the, the atmosphere. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to spray... Uh, mostly particulates to reflect the sunlight, which is what really it appears mostly. And whether people die from the little particles, I mean, they're not worried. And this man's trying to get some of the health, uh, the health, uh, some of the courts to look at the health side of it. But I really don't think it's going to get much. It's going to fly very far. Do you? Well, uh, hard to say. I mean, at least someone's taking that, that first step. And uh, as you say, these aluminum particulates that they're, I guess, uh, they, you know, this is a last-ditch effort to stave off what they see as, you know, global warming and reflect the sun's rays back into the atmosphere. But uh, aluminum has been uh, tied to uh, everything from uh, Alzheimer's to uh, upper respiratory disease, uh, even to, uh, to heart, heart attack and stroke, I believe. So I say good luck to him. Listen, I want to ask you about this, uh, you know, the rumor mill... Uh, on high speed right now, uh, and that is that the U.S. feds are, are prepping for some sort of a major natural disaster. Uh, and uh, I guess the question is, you know, what is it 
And what are they keeping from us? And why are they keeping it from us? What are you hearing about uh, whether the government might be prepping for a, a natural disaster that we don't know about? Well, once again, we don't have to, as archivists, go too far because Janet Napolitano, in August of this year, when she stepped, uh, gave a final uh, speech, said that uh, she described that there, we were due for a massive cyber attack and the U.S. Homeland uh, Security was gauging for a major natural disaster and other major disaster. Okay. You don't have to go far. It's fun. I'm sorry? No, no. So, so uh, they're talking yeah, about so a, a cyber attack. So her public statement was a literal warning um, of that the government has the knowledge and is aware of and is keeping from the people the fact that there are some major big attacks coming. And she went public and said it. But it's but the media, even when they cover it, it just gets lost amongst the bread and circus shows, which is why we sort of want to identify here at this little news point of state secrets, some of these items that are there that just go by and don't get picked up. Well, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, looming disasters, uh, there's talk that the, um, and this came from the food bank uh, CEO uh, this month, warning in the U.S. of riots over major food stamp cuts, which are supposed to take effect uh, in November. They're going to reduce them by something like $5 billion starting, starting this month. And so the average benefit is going to shrink and the overall number of people receiving it is going to diminish by millions. And uh, again, the CEO of America's largest food bank says this is going to end in riots in the United States. Yeah, and um, there's no doubt that that we we've been watching. This is, I mean, very biblical: the the uh, the black horse and the famine, and the famines that have been reported by the IMF as well. The IMF reported that uh, that, uh, and there's been famines in Africa, and the IMF and the UN have been warning for many years that it's coming here to North America, but they don't seem to heed the warnings that are given out. All right. Well, Nelson, listen, uh, time goes uh, quickly. We'll, um, we'll pick this up again in two weeks, State Secrets Volume 2. And in the meantime, uh, you'll be on the program in a couple of weeks as we uh, uh, drill down one last time on uh, JFK before the big anniversary date. Looking forward to that as well. Yeah, there's a lot of stories. It's too bad we don't have time to go through them all now, but we'll look forward to doing the JFK show and getting into some of the things that nobody yet has discussed. All right, Nelson Thal, State Secrets, here on The Conspiracy Show. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Open lines coming up. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome back. And uh, as I said, open lines now until we dim the lights here and say goodnight for another uh, installment of The Conspiracy Show. Uh, so if you've got uh, uh, questions, comments, we can do a little uh, paranormal segment as well. If uh, Something I used to call uh, raising the hackles on the back of your neck. Uh, if you've got a, an encounter with the paranormal you'd like to share, we can discuss that as well. Hair-raising tales. Uh, but if you'd like to talk about uh, JFK, or uh, recently we spoke with uh, Jason Erb, who's going to be part of this Usury Free Week. If you'd like to talk about uh, local, uh, you know, instituting some sort of a local currency, and you think that would work, or a barter system, I mean, there have been proposals uh, for that. I mean, what do you think is in store for us in terms of the economy? Uh, I'm certainly uh, very concerned, and 
I, I, I'm certainly taking my cues from what's happening down in the United States and uh, looking at the dollar very closely and the debt and, uh, of course, the debt ceiling and uh, keeping in mind the... Uh, uh, the uh, the Chinese hold something like 1.3 trillion dollars in U.S. debt instruments. They are the largest holder of U.S. debt, and they're not buying anymore. They're not buying any more U.S. Treasuries. Uh, the only institution that's buying U.S. Treasuries is the Fed. That's what this whole quantitative easing is all about. 85 dollars, 85 billion dollars a month. And the question is, how long can this charade, this Ponzi scheme, continue? Uh, before the house of cards comes crashing down. And unfortunately, you know, with, with, uh, the United States being our major trading partner, how long would it be before we go down with it? Down with the sinking ship. Which is perhaps why our prime minister has been so busy the last couple of years racing around trying to ink these trade deals with, uh, uh, Europe and, uh, and Asia and so forth, trying to diversify. I'm not sure how successful that's going to be. But when you've got the U.S. dollar again, uh, last week it was it dipped below 80 cents. It's a it's kind of a psychological uh, boundary. But once it gets below uh, 80 cents, a lot of the uh, forecasters start to watch that dollar very closely. And and I've I've read a number of them say that if it gets below 79, it could go into freefall. That would cause a catastrophic event across the world. That would just be a black swan to end all black swans. Are you concerned about that? And if so, what precautions are you taking? Do you own gold? I've stated on the program many times, I'm a gold bug, but gold is not performing the way it should be. Uh, and there are, I think there's a lot of credible evidence that the reason for that is being manipulated. It's being manipulated in the paper market at the behest, perhaps, of the Fed, using their bullion banks and their agents to drive the price of gold down because... When gold goes up, that's an indication to people that there's something terribly wrong with the economy. And when gold goes up, that means the dollar goes down. So in order to prop up the U.S. dollar, there's some hanky-panky going on backstage in terms of manipulating the price of gold. However, we can also talk about uh, JFK. And as we approach the, uh, the 50th anniversary, and of course there's a lot of noise out there, uh, Regarding, you know, what actually happened on the uh, Daily Plaza, November 22nd, 1963. Hard to separate the wheat from the chaff. Let me just do sort of a, a quick sounding here. And how do you feel 50 years later? Whether you were around uh, then and remember the incident or not, or maybe you're just, you've seen the movie, the JFK movie. There was an old uh, joke. I think it was Dennis Miller, uh, said that, uh, when he asks people, where were you when JFK was shot? They think, He's talking about the movie. Where were you when Oliver Stone shot JFK? But has your, has your opinion changed over the last 10, 20 years as to uh, Oswald's guilt? I believe the latest poll that I've seen, something like 75% of Americans, it may be higher now, 75%, let's say North Americans, believe that Oswald was not responsible or did not act alone, or you sort of lump all of these theories into into, into this uh, into this polling number. Uh, let's just say, put it this way: more than seventy-five percent of North Americans do not believe the official version in its entirety. Wait, where do you weigh in on that? If you believe Oswald did not act alone, if you believe that he may have pulled the trigger, but he but there was a second gunman, that is the definition of a conspiracy. Either he acted alone, or if there were others involved, then you have a conspiracy. 
Something that, uh, that uh, recently I learned, and there was a, a program on the History Channel uh, talking about the JFK assassination. It was playing tonight, actually. And that is uh, that if you remember the, uh, the, um, the footage, the Zapruder film, and, uh, of course, Jackie O and uh, Jackie Kennedy, rather, in the, uh, in the back of the limo, and uh, the, um, her, her pink hat uh, blowing off her head. And, of course, she's that, that famous scene where she's crawling over the, uh, the, the back uh, of the car. Some people think she was trying to retrieve her hat. Or others say, no, she was actually trying to, it's kind of morbid, but pick up pieces of Kennedy's brain after the fatal head wound. Um, but think about that hat blowing off. So the, the wind, they're driving into the wind. Now, two cars back, following the Secret Service uh, car, Two cars back is President or Vice President Johnson. In the car with President Johnson was Senator Yarborough. Yarborough made a very interesting statement several years after the assassination. And this was a, uh, I believe he was a decorated uh, war hero, knew a little bit uh, about uh, armaments, guns. And he said, you know, it was strange. After I heard the shots, I smelt gunpowder. I smelt gun smoke. I, and and uh, he said, the wind was blowing into our face. He said, there is no way we would have smelt gun gunpowder if the shots came from the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository Building. The only way you're going to smell gunpowder is if you're downwind from it, which means, obviously, by extension, the shots did not come from the sixth floor. They came downwind, perhaps the grassy knoll, perhaps under the uh, the underpass, Yarborough wasn't the only one who smelt gunpowder. Uh, gun Elizabeth Cabell, the wife of Dallas mayor at the time, Cabell, she also commented, immediately after hearing the gunfire, she smelled gunpowder. Again, keeping in mind, think of Jackie's hat blowing off as they're driving into the wind. They're downwind from it. You're not going to smell gunpowder if it's behind you coming from the sixth floor. All right, uh, let's say hello to, is it Darlene? Hello, Darlene, welcome. Hi. I just wonder, are you going to do another uh, show on the M6 paranormal crash? Oh, yes. Uh, we did that a couple of months ago. That was a, a fascinating uh, story. Uh, a British, uh, I believe it was Colin Andrews is his name, I wrote this book about the M6 crash, that, and there was a similar crash in Paris uh, where people who were at the scene reported... These uh, cars at the front of the, the crash uh, that had, I guess, uh, struck a, well, a no, truck or something no were completely things. empty. Nobody in the car, no blood. Uh, and he was suggesting, I think, that uh, perhaps that the occupants of the car were time travelers or, or something. I mean, how else did they evade the carnage? Uh, what, what, do, what do you know about the M6 crash, darling? Basically, it was the um, first time I ever heard about it, and um, he also mentioned that there was no footage. There's, usually there's um, cameras showing uh, vehicles, and there was no footage. All the footage was taken out. Yes. Showing the actual crash. That's right, and, and, and uh, uh, people that were uh, behind the crash scene but driving along the M6 reported that at about the time of the crash, there was this flash of white light, and as you say... Uh, none of the um, uh, the the, uh, the video cameras along the M6 but were you operating. Find, you you can't find any of the investigators either. They they've kind of um, 
they're, they're quiet. Like they, you don't hear anything else, only that. And it's just kind of um, disappeared. The story's disappeared. Um, I also wondered if you uh, were going to do anything on Michael Hastings. Ah, um, yes. This was the, uh, the, the investigative reporter that um, supposedly died in a car crash. Yeah. Uh, but there are suggestions that he was, uh, let's say, taken out by some intelligence agency. Uh, I haven't done a program on that. Uh, I mean, uh, unless I've, is there anything uh, new to report on that that I've missed, darling? Um, they said he was going 35 miles an hour, not speeding. And um, they did a few reconstructive things. They said um, that the fire was too large to be uh, a normal car fire. And that was, and of course, all the, um, they did die, some diagrams on the actual scene. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 uh, the question is, you know, who killed Michael Hastings if in fact he was murdered and, and, uh, and why? Uh, and as you say, there are some strange uh, circumstances surrounding his, um, his death. For the M6 Paranormal, they've, they've never actually shown the investigator. There's a Roger, um, um, can't remember his last name, but he's the um, investigator. They've never shown any information about him either. Hmm. Now, now um, I'm trying to remember what Hastings was supposedly investigating. I know he was doing some work for Rolling Stone magazine, and uh, it had something to do with... Um, was it the U.S.'s counterinsurgency um, a strategy in Afghanistan and, and um, somehow tied in with U.S. General McChrystal at the time? Uh, that was an older story about two years prior. He was working on five news stories, they said. Hmm. But uh, he apparently didn't want to drive his own vehicle that night. Yeah, slammed into a palm tree, as I recall. It burst into flames. Uh, that's where it's strange. They said, actually, that's not... It was the way the car moved into the tree that was odd. Yeah, it, it supposedly accelerated rapidly. Degrees. Actually, it didn't. It actually kind of coasted into it. Hmm. It's, it was, it's a very strange accident anyway. Well, there are certainly a lot of those. Um, it, they do show diagrams. And it was uh, very odd. Well, uh, I believe it was a um, um, Michael Shrimpton, if I'm remembering correctly, who was the... Uh, sort of the attorney for MI6 in Britain, who said that, uh, you know, he had it on good authority. That was sort of the favorite method of assassination for a lot of these intelligence groups, uh, is, is, is the car crash, because they're so common. Uh, and, and people just take it for granted that, yeah, well, people die in car crashes all the time. Listen, I appreciate your call, uh, Darlene. Yeah. Thank you for this. Okay. Thank you. All right. Just a few moments uh, remaining before we turn on the lights. I think we'll have time for one more call if you get in now. And uh, just a reminder, coming up next week on the program, uh, it'll be our final installment of our JFK series with James D. Eugenio. Uh, however, uh, that'll be Episode 8, as we've sort of been working our way through his book, Destiny Betrayed. Uh, but the following week, which will be sort of our last show before the anniversary date, uh, the 50th anniversary of JFK, JFK's assassination, uh, we'll have uh, Nelson Thalback on the program and also uh, Jim Mars, whose uh, book Crossfire served as sort of the basis for Oliver Stone's JFK. And uh, also uh, looking to have uh, Jim Fetzer on the program as well, another one of the preeminent JFK assassination researchers. All right. 
that's it for me. My thanks to uh, Tim Spreen for technical production. Thank you. Back next week, as I say. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.